Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to StageCraft, Variety's theater podcast bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and in the world of podcasts. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of StageCraft, I'm talking to Jeremy McCarter, the writer and producer behind Make Believe, the Chicago-based podcast series of socially engaged audio plays. He co-wrote the best-selling hardcover Hamel Tome, called Hamilton the Revolution, with Lin-Manuel Miranda, spent five years on the artistic staff at the Public Theater, and recently released the book Young Radicals. He's the founder and executive producer of the nonprofit production company behind Make Believe, which recently wrapped its first four-episode season. Now he's here in the studio with me to talk about thinking globally, acting locally, and planning what's in store for Make Believe next season. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Great to see you. Um, so you've spent a lot of your career thinking and writing about the ways that kind of theater and social engagement interact and Make Believe is in many ways an extension of that. Tell us about where the idea came from. That's right. Uh, Make Believe Association, the uh, production company in Chicago, um, is in a sense a kind of test bed. I wanted to really push some of these ideas that I've had, um, some of the experiences I've had in and around the theater and to try to make something new. Um, I moved to Chicago a few years ago, and one of the things I really love about that place is it seems to say to you, what do you want to make? And what I wanted to try to make was a production company that would extend some of these ideals. To me, one of my favorite things about theater is there's this social aspect of it. It's a collaborative endeavor. And so a lot of the thinking that went into make-believe was, well, what are all the ways we can get people doing things with each other? Um, And so part of the experiment that we've been running is just like, well, let's keep trying stuff and see what happens. Can you be a little more specific or expand on the idea of the ways in which Chicago is welcoming to something like this? Like more so than New York? Because a lot of people start stuff in New York. Tell us about kind of the difference. Um, So Make Believe, um, we are, I think of it as a showcase for Chicago artists. Mm -hmm. Um, As you probably know, the um, theater scene there is incredibly rich. And so I thought, well, this is a I'm going to have questions about that later, too. Okay, great. Uh, Happy to answer them. Um, But um, we produce audio dramas, which are like radio plays for podcast listeners. And when we um, record them, we record them in front of small live audiences. And the purpose of that is to give those listeners a chance to talk about the stories afterwards. So if people go to um, your whatever whatever app they use to listen to this podcast and search for the Make Believe podcast, what you'll hear is 
Chicago actors performing something that was written by a Chicago writer, right. and then their neighbors and friends from Chicago talking about it afterwards. Right. Um, and there's a way that Chicago has the space and has the people where it felt like you could try something like that mm. uh, with some with some confidence that it's going to turn into something that's worth hearing. Right. How did the podcast element come about? I've always loved those old radio plays from the thirties and forties. I think it's such a rich form of storytelling. And in a sense, it's like theater, but more so. I mean, the thing I love best is when you go to the theater and your imagination gets sparked by something, you see something on stage and, it, and you have to fill in the blanks around it. And with audio, it's all blanks. You've just got a voice and some sound effects and some music. Um, and it seemed to me that there's now this uh, audience because of the boom in podcasting uh, where you could try something and you could be confident that as in the 30s and 40s, there'd be listeners for it. And audio drama in particular has seen this real surge lately. And the specific thing I wanted to try to make was to say, what if you took all the, all the ideals and the impulses that would make someone want to do nonprofit theater the stories you want to tell, um, the artists you want to tell them, and you took the theater part of it away. And then you just had those impulses and we're using the storytelling tools in a new way. What would happen? And that's what we've been finding. And so Make Believe, uh, we should mention, is a nonprofit. Uh, it is a co production company. Right. That's right. It is a nonprofit. That was important to me. We tried to do Why? this in a non-commercial. I wanted to give the artists the most freedom I could give them. And that was the original rationale behind nonprofit arts in the first place. Right. Um, and, and so what it requires is it, it, people everywhere, but specifically in Chicago to support this experiment to say that we believe that these artists should have a chance to tell stories. Right. There should be more spaces for people to talk about stories. Um, and, uh, and, and it's the, so it is entirely the generosity of foundations and donors that is making this possible. Right. And you alluded to this earlier, but you work, uh, it's very, it is very clear from listening to the podcast from sort of word one that it is a homegrown. It, like it, it is from Chicago. They are Chicago artists. Right. Chicago issues are raised. Um, right. Why was that important to you in terms of? I think there's a way that. Um, so I've done a lot of reading and thinking about the early years of the 20th century. And there was mm. a moment when suddenly culture. You which, just wrote a book on the earliest early 20th century. Uh, a little bit. So uh, I should right, mention. Yeah, so, yes. <laughs> uh, the book is Young Radicals, available yes. in bookstores everywhere. Um, <laughs> but, but there was a moment where mass media came in and suddenly the cultural experiences that had always been local were suddenly national. And I think there is something that I wanted to try to recover about saying that the stories should be reflecting the people and the concerns of a very small area. Because what you find is the more narrowly you define it in some crazy way, it becomes more universal. All, you know, lots of storytellers say that the right. specific things are the universal things. Right. So I just thought, let's really commit. And the, the, you know, as we move forward, it turns out the next series that we're working on, it's not quite ready to announce yet. Um, but we're pushing even more in that direction to, to feel we want to be even more sort of reflective of what we see in the world right around us in the work that we do. How did you end up selecting the artists that you worked with? The choice of the artists it was uh, partly a reflection of the stories that I wanted to tell. Uh, before I left New York, I was on the artistic staff of the Public Theater. Yeah. I ran a series there where we would do uh, a form of this. We would read a play, and then we'd give people a chance to talk about it. We had all sorts of amazing, incredible artists and thinkers take part in those events. What was um, that called? That it series. was called Public Forum. Yep. Uh, and 
those plays were chosen with an eye toward their topicality. So it would be March and I'd be planning for the things that we would do in October. And part of the thinking would be what's going to be on people's minds in October. And let's find a play that would reflect that. In this case, I sort of felt the opposite, that it was interesting to me at a time when we are all so consumed with the latest crisis in the news and we're on Twitter and there are terrible things that we're all responding to. What are the stories that we can tell that would give people something else to talk about? that would force people to go on some sort of imaginative journey together. And that led me to fables and folktales. Right. These are stories that by definition have been told and retold for a really long time. So there's something in them that invites conversation no matter what's going on. Um, so I had some ideas for stories that I wanted to tell and then just looked around and thought about, well, who are the right writers to tell them? Um, and so the, uh, the first season, there were two in particular, um, uh, writer Nancy Garcia Loza, who's incredible. Uh, she's Mexican American. She adapted a Mexican folktale, did a beautiful lyrical job with it. The other writer is Nate Marshall, poet born and raised on the South side. I was a fan of his before we got to be friends. The first thing I did after the company, uh, was formed was to commission a play from Nate. So we were already in business. Uh, and, uh, Nate did a new adaptation of the Br'er Rabbit folktales, um, was the commission initially in your... He was, he was writing for Make Believe. He was writing something that would be heard on Make Believe. Right. right. Okay. Right. Um, and, and so you decided the theme and everything. And he knew that folklore was a we No, nope, that was oh, before. Okay. That's what I mean. Like, as soon as there was... As soon as I had an organization to commission a writer to do something, okay. I reached out to Nate and, and he had said, never written a play before? Am I remembering he, that? Or? He had... Ne he had um, collaborated with Eve Ewing on mm. a piece about Gwendolyn Brooks. This is the uh, first okay. um, entirely his own that he had done. Right. And uh, and as I suspected, the guy is a great, great writer. Right, right. And you mentioned throughout the course of the podcast that there is a writer's room, or was a writer's room, which is a phrase that most people associate more with TV. How how did that work? And how, was, how were these uh, three new works developed? Uh, it was my favorite. I mean, this yeah. is, it turns out, yeah, uh, there's a reason why TV is so good these days. <laughs> it's because the writers help each other. Right. They Often the room is full of playwrights also. So. <laughs> also that. So those playwrights know very well that, uh, look, there is there is an impulse behind everything that we're doing. It's this, if there is a, a thesis behind all of it, it is that we, all of us, we think better and we create better when we do it with other people, especially if they're not like us. And I, when I think about the way a traditional theater works, it turns out you don't often get that many chances to collaborate with the people who do what you do. So any production will have a writer, a director, a set designer, but you don't have five writers. I mean, even musicals, each person has their own sort of department. So for this, I thought, well, if we're all going to be, if they're going to be some number of people doing a similar task, then why don't they have the benefit of each other's experience? And instead of having a development process where you commission it, and then maybe five years later, there's a, there's a 29 hour workshop or something and said, well, let's just do this in half a year, which is about as long as it took to go from pre-production to, to taping for the first season. Hmm. But what you find is that that sort of mutual help and inspiration and feedback, if it's delivered regularly, you start to get this, you, you, the room itself starts to get smarter. Mm. Um, that's the magic of it. And that's the part that, that to be honest, uh, is closer to TV and the thing I by far love the best about the whole experience so far. Can you give us an example of how the writer's room helped? Particularly, you wrote an adaptation of, of some a part of a novel called uh, The Lost Books of the Odyssey. That's right, uh, yes. This. How, how did that writer's room help you as you did that? So writers tend to sort of go down rabbit holes sometimes and you're not quite sure what's coming. And so part of it is is 
it's a little bit the incoming feedback of we, and also um, I would not let anyone um, hand a piece of paper to anyone in the writer's room since what we're doing is only going to be heard in the end. Then why don't we just start hearing it from the very beginning? But so uh, I, as a writer, this did is, each writer read his own, his or her own? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I would read part of a draft of this adaptation I was doing of the Lost Books of the Odyssey, which is Zachary Mason's ingenious riff on Homer. Uh, and then there'd be the immediate feedback of people who were able to say how this was sounding to them based on themselves doing the exact same thing I was doing at the time I was doing it. So the show, as it exists right now, is a uh, an audio a recorded live performance of an audio drama, and then there is discussion or excerpts of the sort of audience discussion that came after that. Was that always the form in your head, or was that a thing you had to come to? It was always the form in my head. There was an event that we did at the public that I really loved helping to put together um, with the philosopher Michael Sandel. It was a night of Shakespeare readings by these incredible actors, um, Vanessa Redgrave, Matt Damon, Lily Rabe, and then um, uh, Professor Sandel at the Delacorte Theater in front of 2,000 New Yorkers started asking questions um, about the Shakespeare readings, which had all been about money. And to see those New Yorkers waving their hands in the air, trying to get a microphone so they could talk about what they thought and debate one another about these questions, to me, is one of the great ways that you can see how stories can spark conversations. Um, so it was really important to me to say... It was important to me, it was important to, me to try mm. to see if we could make that conversation that follows the story feel as collaborative as the writer's room did. Mm. Can we have a conversation, get... a it's sort of own momentum enough that as it was in the writer's room three months earlier, the room is making itself smarter. And you can hear in the, in the excerpts that are at the end of the podcast episodes that people build on the insights of the other people in the room. They share their own personal experiences and that's a beautiful thing. And it's inextricable to me, the creative part of theater, the storytelling and the way that it is a social experience. Right. Do you, how many people are in the audience? How tell us about the the room for those of us who haven't been there. It's a requires a library, yeah. Uh, that we there's a the Harold Washington Library in downtown Chicago has a big beautiful theater uh, which has a big beautiful stage mm. which is big enough, in fact, to act as a kind of sound studio. So we would close the curtain, and for three of the four uh, stories that we did, um, we would put the audience of about sixty people. Um, on stage, sitting on three sides, so thrust configuration, because mm -hmm. you are going to have a better conversation if you're making eye contact with the person you're disagreeing with. Right. <laughs> disagreeing. Uh, and I didn't want it to be bigger than that, because I think I, I wanted it to feel that if you had something to say, there was a reasonable chance that you would have the opportunity to say it in the time available. If there mm -hmm. are a thousand people there, you know you're, you're an onlooker. Right. Um, so, and and I think the intimacy of it was one of the things that that gave people the freedom to really speak their minds. Yeah, I was going to say, people are very uh, participatory in a way that uh, I might feel shy to be in some contexts, and I just wondered what you? the context... Yeah. <laughs> what, um, was there... Who are these people? Who did you invite, and who's... That required a lot of thought, yeah. because I knew from the beginning about this sort of non-commercial aspect of it that uh, we weren't going to charge people. It was going to be open to whoever could get there. But if there are only going to be 60 people in the room, then that means there's going to be some criteria for entry. And uh, to merely make it free means you're just essentially saying the audience will be the people who are getting the email. They're already on the list. They're going to be the first ones who manage to click the RSVP link. That wasn't 
likely to yield the audience that I was excited to hear talk about something like a new version of the Br'er Rabbit stories. And so instead, we tried this new model of doing it. And uh, I thought that if we're trying to sort of build this community around stories, let's build outward from the existing communities of the people who are making the thing. So I said to the actors and the writers and my board and the people who did the sound and the music at the top of every production, I would say, you will decide who is in the room for this. When it comes time for these live tapings, you will get to pick some number of your friends, neighbors, teachers, partners, whoever that you think would have something to bring to this conversation. They're the ones who are going to be in the room for this. And if I've done my job right and the people who make up the company, whether that's my board or the or the actors, if they are reflective of Chicago, then you just extend those those the next sort of ring out means the audience is likely to be reflective of Chicago. Right. Uh, and and that was a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. What have you found are the biggest challenges in recording uh, in front of a live group of people in an in a library? Where to begin? <laughs> uh, no, you always, you know, every taping situation, I mean, we've... How many, oh, how many times do you do the performance? It's more than one, right? We do two of each okay. one, yeah. With different audiences. Uh, with different audiences, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, taping is hard. Audio is tricky. I mean, since you and yeah. I have been sitting here, we hear we are aware of noise around us. True. Right? And so that is difficult to control for that, to find spaces that are big enough to put 60 people, but still somehow the acoustics are good for that kind of taping. So there's all right. sorts of technical stuff. Um, and then with the actors, it turns out, something that we learned as the season was on, as the season went on is how an actor should modulate a performance. To, I wondered about that, sort of how you pitch it specifically for someone's ears. Right. So we have the actors are on lavs. Uh, mm -hmm. They wear microphones, clip on microphones mm -hmm. uh, to get the perform, give them a little more freedom to move around, to deliver a natural performance. But then the trick is only think about that mic and don't think about the 60 people sitting out there right. for the actors with the theater background that's a habit that they have to try to break because if right. you are playing to the 60 the person who's listening to it on their earbuds on their commute a year later is going to think ah this sounds big and performative and that wasn't what we wanted it to feel like right. so it is if people go and listen to the podcast what you'll hear is this is is our best attempt to solve all of these problems on the fly right. there's really no way to solve them until we were making the thing will the format remain the same going forward yes i believe so we're in pre-production now on this on this next a, a series that we want to now generate how it's uh, organized around a single theme Yes. Different from folklore, I'm yes, guessing? Yes, okay. yes. Folklore was the sort of unifying theme. It will not be moving forward. Right. Um, but the but the production model um, feels right. I mean, right. lots of things that we'll fine-tune, um, applying the lessons we learned. But the idea that we can have a performance that leads to a conversation and we have the capacity to share that at national scope, mm -hmm. that part all feels, feels great. And so we'll continue doing that. The same number of episodes are you intending? I think so. Right. That's the part that we're we're still early days yet for this right. next series. So we'll find out. But do you have a sense of when this will be released? Is next it around year, the same timeline? Sometime, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, the the release phase for this season was January to March. So for next year, it'll be probably springtime. Right. Uh, do you, uh, when you think about make believe, sort of five years down the line, do you think of it growing to encompass further activities? I I have. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason is there's a way that the impulse to 
tell stories and to do something for a very focused set of reasons can expand sometimes a lot. And you start getting into like secondary activities and then you start needing more infrastructure. One of the virtues of working this way is the leanness of the model. So if we were a traditional theater for the amount of money that we need to raise and the time that we need to spend, we'd be reaching a small number of people. Um, I want to try to stay lean enough that the money that we're raising, we are able to return to the artists and return to the production team. It's really important to me that we are not doing this with a bunch of unpaid interns doing the work. We are a SAG after signatory, so we can try to treat the artists fairly. I just feel like if we're going to do these things for idealistic reasons, then I'm, in every way that I can, I want to walk the walk. Right. And so uh, it's important to me to sort of resist the urge to start getting into like other lines of business. Right. I think like this model, this way of telling stories is the thing we want to keep driving to. You mentioned this uh, a little while ago. You've been in Chicago for a few years now. Um, tell us about the theater scene there. It has a, you, as you mentioned, it has a robust um, theater scene that yeah. is lively and exciting and all sorts of cool stuff is happening there basically all the time. All the time. It's a huge amount. Of, it's an overwhelming amount of cool yeah. stuff. Um, that the the storefront scene I had been led to believe. Was, what is that? Tell us about the. Okay. What is your impression of what the storefront scene is? Because that is a uh, it is you know storefront theater is a Chicago sort right. of institution in a way. It is. I thought it was like a euphemism or a metaphor or something. Yeah. It turns out no, they're actual, actual storefronts like storefronts <laughs> yeah. that have been like are no longer stores right. and they are now like seventy nine ninety nine seat theaters where the, it's a tiny stage, but it's a, a big enough stage to you know put on basically any kind of play. Um, there is just this. There's this there's this vitality in the city where it just feels like the the barriers are so much lower than they would be in some place like New York. In New York, I mean, partly it's just really expensive yeah. to try to do anything here. In Chicago, it's not as expensive. Uh, Chicago has something like 200 theater companies now, and and I forget the statistic, but like you know, dozens are are emerging each year with a lot of young artists who want to take chances. That's a little bit of what I meant about Chicago. Says, what do you want to make? It just mm -hmm. it, you're able. It is sustainable there in a way it might not be here. Um, and and Chicago is a more lateral city. Um, it's yes. not in New York. You, 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 there is this sort of mental grid I think people have where there's Broadway at the top and you've got the big nonprofits and then you've got off off below that. That doesn't exist in the same way in Chicago. There's obviously there's the Goodman and there's Steppenwolf, the, the bigger theaters, right. but it, it doesn't feel as vast as it does here. And that just sort of changes the changes the environment somehow. Yeah. Are there things that you feel like a city like New York or any other city might learn from what's working in Chicago? To let more flowers bloom. I mean, I really wish there were ways that New York could sustain something like a vibrant storefront scene. And this is not to say, I mean, obviously there's a lot, there, there are little theaters all over the city, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an order of magnitude difference, I think. Um, that's one for sure. And then that's also, I, I can't, ex theater feel, feels more central to the life of Chicago than it does to the life of New York. Mm -hmm. I think it's just because maybe, um, because theaters are in people's neighborhoods and there are just so many people doing it that yeah. it just comes up in the strangest places. Like a people you turn out, turns out someone is a subscriber to such and such theater and, um, and, and when it feels like a like an everyday part of the city, that too just makes it feel like uh, you, 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 you want to get involved. Right. Yes. 
I feel like I have to ask about Hamilton because <laughs> Hamilton. Um, sure. It has, that show obviously changed the lives and the careers of so many people who were involved in it. And, you know, you wrote this book that, with Lynn and the, it was a great big bestseller and it's a giant, big, heavy book. I imagine most of the listeners have probably seen it, if not it's sitting on their shelves. Um, did that, how did that in, affect you uh, and sort of the way you thought about kind of what you would do going forward? Yeah. Um, one thing that, I think this is probably true of lots of people who were close to the production is I do find that it inoculates you against the feeling that something won't work because that was such a crazy sounding idea at the right. very beginning. And then to see that it is now what it has become yeah. this sort of global, possibly interplanetary phenomenon. <laughs> um, it just shows that you, you, you sort of, if you're willing to take a big risk uh, with the right collaborators at the right moment, that these astonishing things really do happen. Right. So there's that. Um, and then, uh, and then, it, and then just in terms of like the, you know, I feel this great sense of gratitude, to be honest. I mean, for years and years there, there, when, when we were both writing about the theater, right. uh, you know, it was on my mind that I wished there were things that theater was doing in a significant way. I wish that it were tapping into the energy of popular culture. I wish they were taking on things that felt they were of, of urgent interest, you know, sort of public interest. Um, and then to see this show come along that just does all of those things so beautifully. I mean, I just, I genuinely feel very grateful that like I got to see it from up close. Yeah. You were, th you were still at the public, we should say, while uh, that was developing. That's right. Were yeah. you, you were still there when it opened? I'm, I was I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, uh, like I say this, it's like you, you think about the, you know, a uh, 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 rock hits the pond and the waves go out and you see all the ripples that Hamilton has had like across the pond. Right. I feel like I got to watch it happen from the perspective of the rock. Right. <laughs> and, and the, and the ripples are not stopping anytime soon. I mean, that's right. we're how many years in now, and it's and there's still so much oh, more in front of it. Yeah, it was 2015, right? So right. it's four already. A long so, time. A yeah. whole a, a whole um, Olympiad of Hamilton. Correct. Still going. <laughs> are you working on a new book? Not at the moment. No, I did two books in two years, which is a lot. That's that's, that's a lot. That's two Chicago winters on a book deadline, yeah. which is <laughs> a lot. So no. So my focus right now is is uh, you know is the writing and producing for you know audiences. Will you? Does that include more than make believe? Uh, it might. I don't know. I mean, this is a question now. Like make believe has. I'm delighted to see that make believe has taken on this identity. It it it, it has a character now. There are specific kinds of stories that make perfect sense for make believe. It has this model. What are they? Uh, well, that we reflect the city. Yeah. Uh, that we are doing things that feel like they would get an audience talking. Right. Um, the process is going to be very collaborative. Um, right. uh, so you know that that is a there is a. I, there begins to be a make-believe type of right. program. And to the extent that I pop off weird ideas that don't fit in that model, then that's always a question of just right. like, well, then then, then what? Will you write something this coming season as well? Uh, I do not plan to, no. Okay. Um, if This season, I'm very excited to just be there to sort of help along, support, provoke, um, right. encourage. Um, Will there be a larger team of writers? Because there were only two, well, two plus you. Two plus um, me. And, and I should say, uh, Lorraine Hansberry. Um, also season, Lorraine Hansberry. Right, the, the ghost of Lorraine Hansberry uh, was present in the room. Yeah, which, by the way, if people haven't heard that episode of Make Believe, I had no idea that play, or that, I guess, teleplay existed. Right. Um, right. And it's fascinating. And it, it is. It's this, it, She wrote it for television. Yeah. It was never produced. Um, the idea that there's anything that Lorraine Hansberry wrote that isn't of sort of general, like, yeah. general awareness. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chicago and Lorraine Hansberry, we should say also, right? It was so again. It was a way of sort of saluting 
the greatest of Chicago. Yeah. Um, but it, we were very proud to be able to tell that story. It's very timely because it's about the end of the world. So. Yes. <laughs> right. It felt really weird until I realized weird for TV in the 60s, but then I thought it was probably the same era as the Twilight Zone, and actually that seems uh, about true. right. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah no. but, um, TV audiences were used to that, I guess. Um, so. Yeah. Um, and and hopefully now podcast audiences are today. Right. Um, and uh, what can you give us a teaser for next season? Next season, let's see. How can I tease without giving, in, without giving too much away? Mm. Um Next season, we want to push in the direction of things that audio storytelling does really well. Um, there's a way that it favors um, elevated language, like music, like um, lyrical speech. Um, and there are ways that... Um, no, that's all I'm going to say for right now. All right. I will have to come back in a couple well, months and, we, I'll, and I'll tell all. <laughs> we, look forward to, we look forward to hearing it when we get a chance. Great. Uh, Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for being here. Nice My to talk pleasure. to you. That was Jeremy McCarter, the founder and executive producer of Make Believe, which you can find on your podcatcher of choice. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of Stagecraft, we'd be very grateful if you took the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or tell a friend. Looking ahead, Stagecraft is going bi-weekly for the summer, so I won't be back next week. But look for a new episode the week after that, when I chat with two of the creators behind Broadway's buzziest summer opening, Moulin Rouge. Thanks for listening, and until next time, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.